Hello and welcome to the Global City Mission podcast. The podcast is hosted by Global City Mission Initiative. This is Seth Bouchel, GCMI's team leader in New York. And today we're with Andy Johnson talking about developing leaders cross-culturally. How are you doing, Andy? Doing well, Seth. So, Andy, what, what is your current title these days? I work at the Mission Resource Network, and my title there is the Director of Church Equipping and Prayer Coordination. Okay, that's that's a mouthful. I don't know entirely what that is, but I know I met you when you were still a missionary in Burkina Faso. That's right. Yeah, we tried to uh, we tried to get you over as an intern, but uh, <laughs> we had some internal problems in the country that kept you out. That's right. Uh, so tell me a little bit about sort of your ministry timeline and how you got to where you were or where you are now, your okay. current position. And, and uh, then I want to shift to talking about the topic, which is developing leaders cross-culturally. But give us a little bit of background. All right. Well, uh, we spent about a dozen years in Burkina Faso. Uh, it was actually a season of a lot of consistency. We lived in the same house, in the same village, drove the same pickup. Uh, worked with the same tribe the whole time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that said, I had several different ministry shifts while we were there. We began by learning language and culture, and that process took almost a year and a half mm-hmm. um, before between getting settled and being ready to start working in villages. Uh, then we began planting churches, and the way that we did this was telling stories. Uh, we just we had a story set that we took from who God is when he made the world all the way up through through the prophets and the kings on into the, the life of Jesus. And mm-hmm. then a little bit of teaching about the church. And um, we told those stories. Um, we allowed our listeners to, to to draw out from those stories what they learned about God mm-hmm. and, uh, and and really what they ought to be doing differently in their lives because of the things they'd heard and the, the things they'd learned about God. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I remember about those early days was honestly being surprised that it worked uh, th- those those first few times of telling these stories and then basically saying who's with me and 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 seeing 30 people at a time uh, commit their lives to Christ all mm-hmm. at the same time was just very very exciting now, now we programmed into those first few churches if if we did all of the storytelling in church a church a was going to pick where church b was it had to be within a bicycle ride or a, or a short walk to get up to the next village um, and then in church B, I would start off doing the teaching, but then slowly more and more as, as we went on over three or four months, I would transition into the background, uh, equipping storytellers from church A to, to come in and do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when it came time for church C to get planted, church B was the one who picked out where C would be. Church A helped them. Right. And then I just picked up and went somewhere else. Right. Um, and so that was, that was our first phase of our work. Uh, the second phase of our work, once we had Number of places where faith was taking root, um, churches were expanding. That was it's just part of their DNA was that there is no such thing as a church that isn't planting churches. That, okay, that was just from the beginning. Yeah, central part of the DNA. Yeah, disciples make disciples, churches plant churches. Right. Yep. Yeah. So then, kind of phase two of my of my work, uh, honestly, probably my favorite years. Uh, they were about three or four years where, as the churches were expanding, uh, we called it. A, applied theology or practical theology they were they were continually asking the question we used to do things this way what does the bible say about it now how are we going to do things in order to be authentically dagara and authentically christ following at the same dagara time? being the the tribe or people group you worked with yes right? sorry about that yeah. no problem yeah. uh, so I, I loved those years of of walking with christians as they as they asked those questions around funerals and marriages and birth and planting and sure. harvesting. Um, they also asked all these questions about worship. I mean, they were they were an animistic tribe that knew about worship, but not worship of our God. Right. 
So they were asking questions about this. These are the ways that we used to worship. Now we understand who God is. We worship in Jesus' name. What does that look like for us in order to be Dagara while also being Christ-following? Yeah, and I know one of the things that I remember being really attracted to in you guys' work uh, back when we originally met was that you guys had, in addition to pretty expansive church network, leadership network, an indigenous, I don't know what you call it, liturgy, hymnody. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, what, I don't know what language you use, but it's rare that I see people thinking about disciple making movements, but also thinking as holistically about ceremony, liturgy, types of worship that also are contextualized, but emerge from the movement itself. Can you say a little more about what that looked like and how that developed? Sure. Well, one of the ways that we developed was <laughs> with, with the very first church plant I had written, I'd written on my, on my notes, sing and got out there and realized that that a bunch of pagans don't know any christian songs so (laughs) early on we we were we were pushing them to these things you're hearing sing about them in the ways that you would sing Hmm. um and so the lord brought to this movement songwriters Hmm. uh, mostly women um because they're the ones who traditionally do all the singing uh, antiphonal singing about things that dagara people care about One one of the things that really cracked me up um, about a quarter of our hymnody, the mm-hmm. Dagara hymnody, are songs against Satan or against his demons. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they call them out by name. Sometimes they make fun of them. Uh, one of the peppiest songs that, that pe- all visitors loved and, and just really enjoyed singing uh, basically was translated, um, if your grandfather worships the demons, will he ever make it to heaven? And everybody shouts, no! And, and it's just it's kind of this funny, <laughs> peppy Heck no, you cannot serve God and serve the demons at the same time. Mm. Uh, and so just very earthy. Uh, they read a lot like the Psalms. Um, mm. Some songs about mourning, songs about death. It's a, it's a country with a very low life expectancy. Um, your average woman gives birth six times, but one in five babies die. Mm. And, and so your average woman loses a child. So just, just songs about things that matter to Dagara people. Right. To Dagara tunes. And, yeah, that's powerful. So talk to me about, you've been back from uh, Burkina Faso and back stateside for how long? I've been back five years, but let me real quickly address yeah, the, the the last four years of my work. Mm-hmm. I basically invested myself in, in six people. Okay. Um, went to, that applied theology stuff was a blast, but but it wasn't, it wasn't helping to fill leadership voids. Sure. The movement had grown very, very fast. Um, by the time we left after a dozen years, there were, 110, 115 churches, depending on what you call a church. Sure. Um, upwards of 10,000 Christians. But as far as leaders who, who'd been equipped to then train other leaders, there mm-hmm. was a real lack. Uh, and so I, I invested myself in six guys. Mm. Um, after what I told all of them was, we're going to start working together. But if you're not working with your own people within six months, then I'm walking away from you. Sure. Um, a leader, there is no such thing as a leader who's not investing in other leaders. That, sure. was, that was part of the DNA. Uh, and so those six people, we, we did a lot of life together. They had, you know, we had formal access to each other's lives. We had times where we came together, uh, but we also had organic access to each other's lives. They knew that if they came to my house, they had a place to, to stay. I, I knew that when I went to the village, if it got late, I could stay. We ate together. If, if they were, if they were, they'd forgotten that I was coming and they were working in the field, I'd go out to the field and, mess up their field by trying to help those kinds of things. (laughs) Yeah. And so talking about stateside, when, when did you guys get back? Uh, We got back in 2014. Okay. 
um, landed real briefly at a Christian college um, and then wound up doing four and a half years as a missions minister at a church Christ in central Alabama. Okay. And is my memory right that you still maintained a pretty strong connection to Burkina Faso for some of those years that you're back? We did. We, we made, we've only actually been able to go back one time. Burkina has really declined politically. Hmm. Um, most of the missionary community that we knew when we were there no longer lives there. Um, they experienced a pretty significant coup. Um, and so, so politically, it's just not a, the kind of place you're going to go back and forth a lot. Sure. That said, um, I maintain contact with a number of my friends there, a number of brothers in Christ, a um, number of my Muslim friends that have yet to convert. Sure. Um, so, but yeah, so I still, and you know, two of my sons were born there. It's it's a place that pretty still very dear to my heart. Sure. So talk to me because you're you're now in church equipping mm-hmm. on, I assume the domestic side of things mainly. Yes. Um, so I would think that there are leadership principles that are in common with both, but, but sort of compare and contrast for me, the movement you did in Burkina Faso and the ministry you do stateside commonalities, differences, uh, how does leadership development compare and contrast? Okay. Uh, let's see. Well, one of the main, main, one of the main differences is everybody that I worked with were volunteers. They were, um, they're members of the church, but there, there was no such thing as, as paid church staff. Sure at any Degar church. So everybody was giving up their time and therefore they honestly had a little more credibility when it came to talking to other church members about sure. giving up their time Yeah, because they were doing the very same thing. Mm. Um, but that also brought, you know, some interesting challenges of, yeah, sometimes life just gets in the way and preempts whatever we're trying to get done church wise. Mm. Um, uh, another, another significant difference uh, that I've seen uh, has been in Degar churches were very communal. They they functioned in circles. Um, there were there there might be gifted singers. There there might be that those few literate people who can actually read the text. But a, but a Degara sermon was one person reading a text and everybody talking about what it meant. Mm-hmm. That there was not typically on occasion there were, but typically there weren't prepared thoughts. It sure. was scripture read, people talk about it. Sure, so pretty dialectic. It was most definitely, yeah. and everybody had a voice. If if you wanted to exercise that voice, you were able to do so. Mm. One of the challenges that I found with stateside churches is that there's a very select few who have a voice that the whole church gets to hear. Mm. Um, pockets of, you know, pockets of influence exist, but as far as those few who actually have the voice that the whole church gets to hear, those are guarded sure. pretty tightly. Mm. Uh, so tell me about when, when you're thinking about leadership, especially when you're in the missionary position, what are the important qualities you look for in a leader? How do you know when you see potential for leadership? Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, one of the main qualities and that really kind of, kind of weeded out a number of folks was that requirement that anything that I do for you, you need to pretty quickly be doing with someone else. Hmm. Um, I think in a lot of developing countries, this is the case, but for sure among the Degara, uh, possessions were, were, were pretty well shared. I mean, people own stuff, but, but you, your stuff isn't really your stuff. Your sure. stuff is your family's stuff, your village's stuff. But when it came to information, information was power. Mm-hmm. Um, the traditional secret religions were based on those few who had secret information that everybody sure. else didn't have. It's where their power came from. And that was a real tendency that we saw pop up for the same thing to happen among Christians as well. Mm-hmm. That as you've received something, you hang on to it because it's your power. 
Mm-hmm. So one of the things that, that, that that requirement of the fact that you have to multiply yourself, it weeded a lot of those folks out. They had to be people who were willing to receive something and immediately turn around and share it. Uh, that, that brought to the fore um, a different kind of leader. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not necessarily, they weren't necessarily, in fact, uh, typical big men who, who stood up and, and would have been pointed at as the best leader. Sure. Um, because they were so willing to to share uh, when that was a, a pretty countercultural thing. Hmm. Uh, we also were, when we look back on our time in Burkina, we were spoiled missionaries. It's a hard place to live, but as far as ministry, I mean, holy cow, it was it was an example of the spirit having prepared a field. Knuckleheaded green missionaries showed up, tried stuff we'd been told, and it it did what it was supposed to do. Hmm. So when it came time to do leadership training, I was able to go to a few of our strong churches and say, hey, I want to work with one of your leaders. Um, I'd, pr- I'd particularly like it to be someone who's already planted at least two churches. Mm-hmm. So I was able to to kind of pick, of, mm-hmm. you know, in order for me to be working with you, you had to have already shared your faith in such a way that group faith communities had sprung up in two new villages. Yeah. And you were willing to share it with somebody else. Yeah. So I, I got to be choosy. It was a, it was a privilege. Sure. So in, a, in addition to sharing and passing off, reproducing, what are the other qualities that you would say are important to look for in a leader? And are they things that you catalyzed or are they things that you had to form or maybe a combination of both? Let's see. I would say, so generally speaking, it was a combination of both. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these were things that the Holy Spirit already had in these folks. Um, others were things that I that I ins- inspired them to do, called out in them. Um, it, the men were men of peace that I worked with, and, and not necessarily the the whole DMM person of peace thinking. Uh, Dagara are angry and, and they're loud. It's just accepted that you're gonna. You're going to beat your wife. You're going to beat your kids. You're going to get in fights. And as Christ took root in the hearts of a few Dagar men, they became peaceful. Mm-hmm. They became people that didn't beat their wives, didn't overreact, didn't get into fistfights with other men. Uh, so that being peace-filled men. So they were persons of peace, but really it was more than that. It was actually sure. the, the, the peace of Christ was actually upon these guys. Mm-hmm. Um, they were faithful to their wives. Um, now, some of them had more than one wife. That, sure. that, that, that's a complication of working with places where the gospel is first working its way into a culture. You've mm-hmm. got sticky family situations. I bet. And you just, you, you live with those and you work with the people that God calls. And sure. Some of these men that I was working with, God called them when they had two or three wives, but they were faithful to them. Mm. Um, which really mattered because they, they did a lot of traveling. Sure. And, um, and they, by all accounts, they were men of character. Mm. Um, was it predominantly men that emerged in leadership? It was in the leadership that I that I worked with. Mm-hmm. Um, now, towards the end of my time, as we started looking at second, third, uh, by the time I left, there were a couple of branches that were out to the fourth generation of leaders. Uh, a number of women were, were, were into those branches, and then uh, actually one of one of the, one of my six guys that I worked with about. Less than a year, but more than six months from the time I left, actually died. He passed away, um, and so I actually wound up working with one of the one of the significant female leaders that was in his village as well. Culturally, there was a lot of a lot of things that a lot of distance that I had to maintain sure. with, with women. Um, yeah, 
Uh, but then on the other hand, I mean, some of the some of the strongest leaders our churches had were women. That was why it was so important uh, for my bride and some of the other women on our team to be to be investing in women. Sure. At the same time. Right. Uh, in fact, that looking back on it, it you'd asked about to comparing and contrasting leadership among the Dagar and leadership in American churches. One of the things that 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 makes my my faith tradition a little ill fitting for me now mm. is that for years my bride and I did ministry together. Right. We were missionaries to the Dagar tribe. Uh, and then when I was at that church in Alabama, I was a missions minister. Sure. Now that I'm at MRN, I do church equipping and prayer coordination. The the change of pronoun has right. been really challenging for us. I would imagine. Uh, so tell me about when when you're passing off leadership uh, on a on a practical level. Um, when do you know it's the right time, and, and how do you begin doing that in a way? Because I one of the mistakes that I've been guilty of in my own ministry is probably pushing somebody too hard too soon to be leading things and then patting myself on the back that, you know, look, yeah. I'm, I'm passing on leadership. But then, of course, you know, the, the classic missionary problem is often the pendulum on the other end. You stay 30 years in the field and never raise up and train any other leaders. Yeah. Where was that sweet spot, and, and how did you navigate and discern the when and how of that? Okay. Um, and obviously it's different in different circumstances. Yeah, it is. It's a general rule. Um, let's see, some thoughts on that. Uh, first of all, we're, we were really aware of, of both ends of that pendulum. So, so we were trying to trying to aim for the middle on that. One of the ways that we did that is we as missionaries were never fully integrated into any of the churches. Uh, we always maintained a, an outsider catalyst position. There, there was never a church that was my church, my home church. Sure. So consequently, all of the all of the leaders with whom I was working were always the leaders in their churches. I was right. never a leader in their context. Right. Um, another significant thing for me was I knew that it was time for me to start backing away when the leaders came and started telling me what I was doing wrong. Sure. When they started saying this is this is something you're not doing right. You've said you believe this, but now you're doing this. Mm-hmm. You need to listen to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when I and and, and the Man, there were, there was, I can tell you some great stories of those times where, where church leaders really began to, to step up and say, Hey, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. And, and those were some, some of the real signs that we looked at as mile markers on the road of, okay, well, maybe we're starting to get in the way. Right. Um, and then the final thing I'd say about once a year or maybe more than once a year, once every eight months or so, I'd get together with the people I worked with, the people they worked with, people they worked with. Sure. One of the things I loved about it was I was meeting people for the first time. Right. I love the fact that as time went on, that the men, the, the guys I was working with were discipling were guys I'd never met in villages I'd never been to. That was really cool. Yeah. Anyway, we'd come together and we would have, uh, we'd spend a weekend or three days in a text. Uh, the Wycliffe Bible translators were producing the New Testament the whole time we were there. So the last time I got together with all of the guys, um, Wycliffe had just released a rough draft of Galatians, which is a blast to work through with a bunch of earthy farmers. There's some really great vocabularies sure. in there that farmers just think is hilarious. And uh, and so we, we worked our way through Galatians together with these 30 guys. But one of the things we did, we drew on a chalkboard, started with me in the middle, had my six guys, had their guys, had their guys. It was this beautiful spider web that just sprawled all across Dagari territory with me smack in the middle of it. 
Mm-hmm. And that absolutely no longer needed to happen. I mean, we had four generations of leaders stretching out after me. It was silly that I was continuing to remain a a, a hub as an outsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that, to me, that 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 weekend was the moment that I knew I'm done here. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now I'm not walking away today. We're we're going to finish out some stuff, try to finish well. But I just felt an absolute peace in that moment that. And these guys, they've got this. They're mm. they're doing it better than I've ever done it. They're they're willing to to boss me around and point out my mistakes. They they've got multiple generations of leaders after them. I'm in the way. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's a real testament to your own humility and and theology that you would see that. Talk to me about this because one of the things that you know we we talk to a lot of people that do DMM or or other similar strategies overseas. And something that I have a suspicion about is that when when they talk about leadership development in movement, they are often in cultures that already have some pretty stable and assumed social structures. Okay. That the villages have elders, the, the family is patriarchal, it has a certain assumption culturally about what leadership looks like. Mm-hmm. And even when they're being countercultural, they are in a sense working within a known framework. Sure. And looking at North America, and especially in a multicultural city society, mm-hmm. uh, and you can't take for granted what leadership looks like in any given neighborhood or subculture, because it it may not already exist. And so you're you're working in some ways to help create it alongside the people you're discipling. Now that may not be right, but that's a read I have, mm-hmm. uh, and it's been true to some of our work that it's egalitarian in a way that and I'm not talking about gender, mm-hmm. but in the sense that people are almost afraid of identifying leaders for fear of authoritarianism or somebody taking over. Mm-hmm. What did you learn about leadership development that if you were trying to do similar ministry in the U.S. that would would be some of your kind of guiding principles, best practices? How would you translate that to North America if you were doing it here? But that's a really great question. As I, as I think about this, um, something that I would do, I would trust, I would trust the Holy Spirit inside of people. Mm. Um, I would not feel the need to be heavy-handed in giving people a, a university-level education or mm. anything like that. To, sure. to trust that the Holy Spirit inside of believers uh, will enable them to to interpret Scripture, to discern what what worship ought to look like, what a faith community ought to look like. Mm. Uh, I've been doing a lot of thinking about that just here in my neighborhood. We, we just moved a few months ago, landed here, and on my street, um, I've got eight ex-military families around me, on, just on my block. Mm. Uh, Texas gives great breaks to military families. And so sure. I've got these guys with a similar background, all of whom have moved here recently as well. They're all uprooted. Most of them have recently retired. Mm. Uh and so they're they're all searching. Hmm. They're all hungry. Um, so as I've been having these conversations with them, I've been floating around in my head, what would a faith community look like on my street? Hmm. Uh, gathering in a in a living room, what would that look like with a bunch of ex-military families, folks that are accustomed to to making quick friendships because you know you're going to move soon. Yeah, now, they may not move soon because they're done. They're they're retired now. Sure. 
but they're, they're people who are going to be unafraid to dive in quickly. Mm. Um, so to, to be unafraid to ask those questions of what would it look like in this particular setting mm. and to, to not be afraid of what the answer might be. Mm. Um, you know, as I think about, I referenced that what we called applied theology of we used to do it this way. The Bible says this. Now we're going to do this. Let's ask that question about guys that spent 20 years in the U.S. military. Right. You know, I I used to lead this way. This is what Jesus, this is how Jesus led. Hmm. How am I going to lead within a a little faith community on my block? Yeah. What's that going to look like? It may not look the same way as a, as the, the, the church Christ down the road. Um, <laughs> sure. So if I'm hearing you well, and, and correct me if I'm not, that inviting in the people that are part of that discipleship community to really discern how to contextualize that, what what we need to change or maybe re uh, you know recycle mm-hmm. as a part of what it looks like to be a community of faith here, what it looks like to be a community of disciples here, mm-hmm. but that you being the facilitator and only member of that conversation, not necessarily deciding beforehand what it should look like and trying to work that out. Is that a fair interpretation of what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And so as we're, as we're looking at, yeah, I I think this speaks some to leadership, some to, some to trusting the spirit, you know, college football just started again. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of churches would be served to ask the question, this is how I used to watch college football when I was a pagan. <laughs> the Bible says this about priorities. Sure. How am I going to watch football as a red-blooded American and a Christ follower? Mm. What's that look like for me in football-crazed Texas? Yeah. Uh, so I think things like that, um, my granddad and my dad, they were this kind of husband. Mm. The Bible says this about being a husband. Yeah. What kind of husband am I going to be? Yeah. Uh, the military says this is what a leader looks like. This is what a follower looks like. This is what Jesus says mm. about leading and following. How am I going to lead and follow now mm. within my community? So just, just asking questions like that and being okay with answers that are outside of whatever box you grew up in. Yeah, not dictating the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm. Andy, that's really good stuff. Uh, and I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for it's, us. it's a privilege. Thanks. And uh, thank you for joining us today on the Global City Mission podcast. You can learn more about GCMI at our website, globalcitymission.org or you can visit us on our Facebook and Twitter.